This is for Clementine and Otis. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we meet today, the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. Black Lives Matter. Shout out to our sponsors today, Indosol. Use code THT at checkout and get yourself some timeless Indosol sandals. They are recycled motor vehicle tyres um, and they're made into footwear, guided by the B Corp ethical manufacturing certification that they have, which is established by the brand Patagonia. Uh, you can become a conscious consumer by visiting indosol.com. That's I-N-D-O-S-O-L-E.com. And that's worldwide. You'll be directed to the distributor in your region for fast delivery. Let's go. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Manisha Todd. Manisha is back on the show to check in for a chat about her lived experiences in relation to recent national and global events. And beyond that, we're just having a chat. Manisha Todd, welcome. Hello, how are you? (laughs) Thanks for having me back. I'm so stoked to have you back. I love the new intro. That sounded so good. You really think so? Yeah, I was like grooving out on the chair. I'm so glad because... I put a lot of thought into it and um, I bounced it off different friends and got feedback and it was like a 50-50 split. Like some people like keep the old one, some people like keep, try the new one. And in the end I was like, you, you got to progress and just mix it up. So yeah, try something new, why not? That was like, that might be the new intro for the next 100 episodes, who knows? I like it. <laughs> Thanks. I'm stoked. So how are you? Like what's, you know, give me a give me a breakdown of the last um, – you know, the last, let's say the last month of your life. The last month of my life has been particularly hectic. Why? Um, I've been working, so I work full time. I've also recently changed jobs, um, which was surprisingly emotional. That was last week. Um, and I've been doing a lot of trips to Sydney um, a lot of full weekends that I've spent in Sydney. Um, I've been going to different protests. <clears throat> sorry, um, some of them I've been attending, some of them I've been doing like human rights observing at. Um, I've done a few different talks. I don't know. I've done trainings. Mm. It's a lot. <laughs> it's hard to summarise actually. So so how's things going at Amnesty International? Are you still with them? I am, yeah. So still with Amnesty and it's been one week now into my new role. Um, so... It's not exactly a promotion. It's more just moving to a different area. So I'm actually in fundraising now. Wow. Which I think surprised some people because I do a lot of campaigns and activism stuff in my spare time. But I think if I also worked in that space, it would just be way too much. Um, I don't think I'd have the headspace or the time for that. Um, And I was keen to learn new and different skills. So I'm in the acquisitions team basically, which is responsible for reaching new audiences um, and bringing on new financial donors, um, particularly regular donors. So I'll be able to do a lot um, in the digital space um, on like Facebook and writing emails and 
doing training of different fundraisers and like a whole range of different stuff. Yeah. So why'd that come about? Like why did you feel like you needed the change because you were scared scared of burnout in the other role or did they just bring it up and say, hey, you're good for this? I definitely wasn't scared of burnout in the other role. It was probably the opposite. I had been there for like two and a half years and was just ready for something else. I wasn't feeling very challenged um, and was looking to progress and learn new skills. Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't – I love my team. Um, and I love the organization, but I didn't love like the role that I was doing. Okay. Um, it was like an admin type role. So yeah, I was ready for something else. Yeah. Nice. So cool. So look, the reason I was really keen to have you back on the show, um, last time you were on, I got a lot of really nice feedback about, you know, um, you was just a guest and as a person and as like a really inspired young person and, um, and I agree, you know, and also there's a lot of compliments on your voice, your radio voice. <laughs> so, but what I, um, what I really, what a lot of people were, were talking about was we touched on some, I guess, some delicate themes, mm. uh, especially around some of the work you do with uh, Amnesty International, but also your volunteer work with Lifeline, mm. um, which I think is such a, a crucial organization to our society. Um, how's that going? Are you still working with that or, or I, volunteering? Yeah, I am still at Lifeline just barely. I've only done two shifts this year and I'm supposed to be doing one a week. Right. <laughs> um, hopefully I can squeeze in that this weekend. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I really want to keep doing it because it's one of those things where Sometimes I find it hard to fit in um, and it's quite emotionally exhausting and you really need to be in the right headspace because you never know what kind of call you're going to get Um, and you do need to be mentally prepared to potentially have like a really intense call and if you're not prepared to have that, then you probably shouldn't do the shift because you never know. Um, But always, so sometimes it can feel like a bit of a chore um, which is unfortunate but then Whenever I do a shift, always afterwards, I'm so grateful that I've done it. And, and usually um, there'll be at least one or, you know, a few conversations that I have where people tell me that they're really grateful that I answered the phone and, and thank me for my time. Not every call, you know, some calls are can be abusive. Um, and really? Yeah, yeah. There's sexual harassment calls too. There's a whole range of different things that we need to look out for. Um, I mean, is this a – I mean – is this because we're dealing with people who are suffering from mental illness and they're using they're using or capitalizing on the opportunity to maybe express frustration or yeah, yeah like they they they're, they're people who are sick people really aren't they like we, when that happens yeah i mean they're seeking help in maybe not the best ways um I mean, it depends on what kind of call we're talking about. Like some people just, they might get frustrated at they when they want advice, for example, and you can't you can't give advice. Um, so they might there might be misunderstanding of what the service actually provides, gotcha. um, or they might want to talk for a really long time, and you don't necessarily have the time. Um, sometimes people just call up and swear at you, um, and are abusive towards you. And, you know, I mean, I, I can only assume they're obviously dealing with some difficult things in their life and they have some um, issues with, you know, anger management or, or whatever. They're struggling to cope basically, but 
um, ultimately, especially because we are volunteers, it's not our job to, to sit on the phones and be abused. So we do have to put boundaries in place. Yeah. There's also a percentage of calls where people actually um, call up and masturbate. Excuse me? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> you can say whatever you want, but really? <laughs> how, do, how do you know they're doing that? It's a really difficult thing <laughs> to tell. <laughs> you kind of just get a bit of a vibe. And, like, sometimes you can hear it and that's actually good. I'd rather hear it because then I know. Mm. Um, like, they might, for example, say something like, oh, it's just so hard. Okay. And, then, and you know, it's – yeah, you just get a bit of a vibe. Sometimes you hear things and then I'll be able to be like, what's that noise? And they might just hang up. Like, I okay. think I've been lucky. Mm. Often I'll try and call them out and they hang up. But then sometimes it's like, look, I actually don't know and – the worst thing would be to act, hang up on someone when it was mm. a genuine thing. Wow. So, yeah, there's a whole range of different things. But um, I think whenever I do go, I always feel really glad that I've went. I feel like it's almost like a special power um, having those skills. And I now that I have this like special power, which is just basically the training that anyone could do, yeah. I think that if anyone could do the training and um, – improve on their skills and a lot of people could do lifeline as well. It's not like I'm unique in that regard. But um now that I have those skills, it's like, oh, I feel like I I should use them. And really? even if now my capacity is a lot lower, um, I'm still gonna try and keep doing it. And basically until they call me out and be like, um, you're not meeting your obligations <laughs> <laughs> and I'll deal with that conversation when it comes. Yeah, I mean Listening to what you're saying, like it sounds like you're dealing with the full spectrum of our society. Um, and look, as there's the dark side of it, we, we have a dark side to our society, you know. Um, but I just think what you're doing is you're being of service to our society. And for me personally, one thing I've learned in my life journey is that when you're being of service to someone or something, I, I kind of feel like that's where the good feelings are. You yeah, know? and like for personal happiness comes from that, and you've said it numerous times. You're like, I just feel so good afterwards, you know. And I think what a what a great way to live your life that way, you know. Even though it would be very difficult sometimes by the sounds of things. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is such a privilege, though. Like, and I've had some. So you see it as a privilege being able to speak to these people. Yeah, because you're you're speaking to people at their most vulnerable mm. moments. And it's, it, it is a privilege to really be there for someone because a lot of those people, they, they don't talk to other people. That's why they're reaching out to us. Um, so for them to have the strength and the courage to pick up the phone in their, their darkest moments and let someone in and talk about how they're going on and I have the privilege to listen to that and to be there for them um, and the responsibility actually as well when I think about it, like to actually listen and, and validate their feelings and support them as best as I can and within the realms of, of what Lifeline does. Um, yeah, and I've had some be beautiful moments. One of the um, – a moment that stands out to me was when someone came out for the first time to me. Wow. So they'd never wow. come out to anyone else before um, – Another person um, along similar lines is a trans woman but hasn't come out yet and will call um, and I'm able to call her by her preferred pronouns. Um, and 
they weep on the phone and or sexual violence and domestic violence survivors or people still going through that, um, having the ability to talk to them and empower them um, and tell them that I believe them and that they are strong and um, validate their experience. So, and, you know, and obviously um, also people who who deal with suicidal thoughts and it's difficult because there's it, there's a lot of irrational beliefs that you can have um, and we need to be careful of that. Like I think sometimes I want the call to end in a certain way because it makes me feel good um, but it's also important for me to remember that it's not necessarily my job to actually make someone feel better um, and it doesn't reflect on me as well. It reflects on where that person is at that time as long as I'm following all the, the right um, the model and the guidelines and of what we can do. So it's you need to, I guess, be really self-aware about where you're at and challenge some of those irrational beliefs as well because it can be hard if um, a call doesn't go like the way that you want it to, not take that on yourself. Mm. But, but you're, holding, you're holding space for people. Mm, yeah. Like, that's a skill and that's exhausting as well, right? Yeah. Because like you're engaged with what they're saying. You know, you're very mindful of, of the concepts and the, the feelings they're having and then expressing to you. And you stay with them for how long sometimes on the phone? I mean, it de- it really depends on the call. Some can go up to an hour. That's probably the longest I've been, but that would only be if there were like serious safety issues. Okay. Um, I mean, not necessarily. It, it, there's no real... Uh, hard and fast rule, but I would say most calls are between 20 to 30 minutes okay. if you're having like a full conversation. Wow. Um, so, yeah, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions, I thought that it was about giving advice mm-hmm. and I think prior to Lifeline I thought that helping people was sitting down and fixing the problem and giving them advice Um, And that's, I think, a very natural and human thing, you know. You hear, you talk to someone, they tell you their problems and you're like, oh, my gosh, I really want to fix it and you want to help them and solve it together. But often that's not necessarily what that person needs and it's not where your your help can actually be provided. Um, And that's been one of the biggest shifts for me, Lifeline, now understanding that it's not about giving advice um, it's about actually listening and hearing them um, and validating their experience basically and just saying, you know, I hear you. Um, I don't necessarily understand what you're going through but it sounds really, it sounds like you're really going through a tough time. And just that actually helps people so much and it surprises me how much um, just that alone can can help people when you're not when you're not um you know you don't even necessarily need to give a referral sometimes it's necessary and if people want advice that's great but I think the key thing is differentiating whether it's solicited or unsolicited so I always try now to ask do you want in my personal life I ask people are you wanting my advice just so I can avoid giving it when it's not wanted Mm. you become a sounding board and so effectively you're bouncing back their own ideas and their own thoughts so then they can see them, their own ideas and thoughts from another party. And I find with me personally when I do that, it actually changes the meaning of those thoughts 
that are in my head and then someone bounces the exact same thing back to me and then I go, oh, different perspective. Oh, okay. And then I learn from that. So mm. you're helping the person. I guess it's on their own journey of self-discovery. Yeah. Yep. Because I sometimes believe that like um, I heard this saying once and it was like like thought, thoughts and feelings aren't facts. And it's not a fact. It doesn't mean that because you're feeling a certain way or you're, you're thinking something, it doesn't actually mean it's true. Mm. And it's a really good point like because it's just a perspective on it. So you're, you're giving another perspective on it. It's really cool. Yeah. But, but simple. And I love the point you made about how it's, in, it's innately human to want to get try and fix situations, you know. And I know it, um, it's, it's coming from a, a place of compassion and kindness, but it's – it's not necessarily what the person wants, mm. but they don't even realize it themselves. Mm. You know. So, yeah, and yeah. sometimes you can ask them what they want. Um, I think sometimes people actually do know um, what they want, so you can ask them as well if you're not sure. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things that we believe at Lifeline is that people are the expert in their their own lives. Um, we don't necessarily know what's what's best for them and what they need, but we put it back on them and we help explore the options with them. But, but it should always be led by them because any solution we give to them, they're not necessarily going to want to do and they need to have ownership over that that um, plan for them moving forward. Life ownership, you know, like no one can do it for us. Like mm. it's it's like it applies to everything, you know. There's, there's no quick fix. There's no easy fix. There's no miracle pill. There's no miracle... Oh, there, I mean, there is, but there's not. You know what I mean? Like it has to come from the person because then it's more significant and then it actually builds their self-esteem and confidence because they did it themselves and they got through it. Mm. And you, and I also believe that those people, when you are on that path of trying to heal yourself and do the work, that the teacher appears or the, 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 the guide, the right person appears to help you on, the, on that trajectory. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's about empowering people. Um, making them feel confident and Power. also a lot of people it, they do have this the strength and the skills um, people who are going through a tough time you naturally will develop some coping skills and they can be on a whole spectrum of whether they're like quote unquote healthy or unhealthy um, you know some people might go down the path of substance abuse and addiction but that is actually a form of a coping mechanism absolutely um, self-medicating yeah, and so if we just we, – a lot of people have existing coping mechanisms and skills and strength and resilience, so it's kind of about, yeah, as you said, being a soundboard and reflecting that back to them so that they can see that for themselves and feel empowered. Um, but, yeah, it's not easy. It's a process. And something that I've been reflecting on a lot recently is that because you said it was really intense and it is, um, and I think that I'm really – because I've had such a privileged life – um, it enables me to take on a lot of these issues. Like a lot of what I do and what I talk about deals with some really intense stuff, but because I don't have that lived experience, it is easier for me to deal with. Um, I spoke to someone recently who does have, who has had a lot of trauma and I think sometimes she gets frustrated that um, people, for other people it's a concept, it's not. And it doesn't have that same emotional response. And for me, I think a lot of that suffering is is more of a concept, but it makes it easier for me to take on that emotional work because it doesn't bring up as much. And I think it 
because of that, it's also my responsibility to do more of the emotional labor because it is inherently less difficult for me. Um, you think your cup is less full? So you have the capacity to take on more? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, not everyone could, can do it and not everyone should have to do it. So if I can and I find that I have the like emotional space to be able to do it then and the skills, like why shouldn't I? Yeah. Absolutely. It's great. But like, a lot of people don't think like that. <laughs> they don't because it's all like I, myself included. It's all, it's, you know, selfishness. Like it's all about me, me, me. Um, and I, I really like it when I see people step out of that and go, okay, well, I'm not going to think about me for a minute. I want to think about someone else. And yeah, I love that you do that. Uh, and again, I said it in our last podcast, like for someone who like you're, you know, in your twenties, you know, um, I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> I wasn't. Well, I don't like to say young because I don't. I don't actually really believe in age because it does come down to the experiences someone's had in life. Like you know, a young person who's had you know a variety of different experiences in their life could have a lot more wisdom than someone who who's older and hasn't. So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't keep using that with you, but I do like that mentality. It's it's really really um. A message that I'd, I'd love to push in the world: mm. like get out of yourself. What can mm. you do for other people? I mean, even Martin Luther King said said it in one of his famous quotes. He said, "The question is not what you can do." Well, maybe it's, I don't know. It's one of those leaders was it Martin Luther King? I don't know. <laughs> and he said something like, um, "I think it, I think I know the quote." Yeah, was it ask not what you can do for yourself or what you can do for others? No, the fundamental problem that we have is people are. Asking what can be done for me when you should be asking what you can do for others, something like that. I don't know. I think it's I, related I think I just though. That up. Yeah, and could have been. I feel JFK. like people know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know because I think, as you touched on before, it's not inherently selfless because I'm getting something out of it. What? Like a sense of satisfaction and purpose and meaning and joy. Like, and that's the hack. Yeah. That, so I think it's about exactly <laughs> like using your inherent selfishness or desire, you know, self-interestedness maybe is is a better way of, of putting it to like serve others. Because um, I think, yeah, it's kind of natural to, to yeah. do things for your own self and I don't think we should necessarily feel ashamed of that. Um, but maybe... But it's, it's not like, um, to play devil's advocate a little bit, it's not a form of narcissism, is it? Where... It's like, hey, look at me. I do so much. I'm helping others. Look, like everyone, look at me. Like I'm so giving. Yeah. Well, I'm some sure people like some that, that, though. Exactly. And like, I think that's been one of my fears. Like, for example, going on a podcast like this and talking about it, and I don't, and or even being um, talking about it on my social media. I'm really wary of that perception of just being like, oh my god, look at me. I'm doing all these things. Like, mm. I'm such a good person. Um, there's a concept called performative activism. Okay. Which is that idea that you're only doing something um, to serve your own purpose and not because you actually care about the issues or you only care on like a superficial level to the extent that it can serve your interests. Mm. Like I think we see a lot of that, for example, on Instagram where people might like post a black square for Black Lives Matter and then not do anything else or like get the selfie at the protest but that's all you do and – uh, it took a it took a while for me to actually feel comfortable. I think in coming out and talking about it, especially online, because I was worried about what people would think. 
But now I'm like, I don't care. If you think I'm doing that, then I don't care because I, I know that I'm not now. Like yeah. I think I had to go through my own process of being like, no, I'm doing this for these reasons. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think humans are so intuitive in the, in the end of the day that they can pick up on who's legit and who's not. It, you know, and, and like you said, you know, you can't be concerned about what other people are going to think, especially when I feel like you are – I mean, it's a tricky one when you're advocating for such important issues and such, um, you know, lot potentially life-changing issues. Like, And, and I, I do think that Instagram breeds what you're talking about, but I also think like, like Instagram's there, it's evil – but let's let's let, let's utilize it for for good for getting the right for for advocating for the right things you know let's yeah exactly you know, it's, not, like, it's not going anywhere so like instead of you know taking selfies of you at the beach in you know in your new swimsuit or whatever like yeah use it and and, and promote promote some good stuff mm. you know? so. and I actually think the performative aspects can also be contribute to to good things as well like even if people are sometimes posting photos and raising awareness about things and their motivations might be more self-interested they're still raising awareness does it really matter what motivates them <laughs> like yeah. I think sometimes we can get a bit too caught up in criticizing the person and everyone's on their own journey you know they yeah. can start you can start by doing that and then you might become more interested in it so I think if people are still raising awareness I don't want to be too like critical of their motivations because I think also think Thank that you. turns people Thank away you. yeah totally yeah because then you're worried about being the perfect activist or whatever and it's funny because in our last conversation sorry I'm talking a lot so whenever you I'm want to interrupt me please do I'm talking a lot <laughs> um, <laughs> well you are the guest on the show so <laughs> <laughs> but let me know if you want to interrupt me <laughs> Not at all. I'm, um, I'm loving it. I'm really like just hanging off your every word, to be honest. <laughs> um, I was going to say, at our, in our last interview, um, I think, you know, you introduced me as an activist and I'd we talked a bit about how I'd like come to embrace that term. And since then, actually, I've talked to some people who are a lot smarter than me and we had a, have had some I reflections. I don't believe it. Keep going. <laughs> um, and about like how that can actually be not that productive labeling yourself as an activist um, because it can actually, it kind of creates a marginal identity Mm. and it differentiates activists and non-activists. Thank you. And I think it makes the barrier of entry higher um, where people think, oh, well, I can't, I'm not like that. So I can't do that. Um, And I think what we, it also, I think, is bad optics if you're, like, trying to advocate for an issue and the media is, like, talking about how it's a group of activists rather than a group of, like, concerned citizens or students or young people, for example. There's this association of activism with, like, you're pushing an agenda. And um, more, it's more militant. I think it's associated with people who are militant as mm. well. Yeah, it's got a lot so, of baggage. So it can be polarising. Yeah. Is that what Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that... Sometimes people it will turn people away when okay. I think it's about breaking down the barriers and being and talking more about the issues and not making it about an identity. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. Like I spoke to some recently. We we're at a training for tomorrow movement, like a full weekend training, and the guy I was talking to was like, "Oh yeah, but I'm not like you. I'm not an activist." And I'm like, 
what do you mean? Like we're both here. We both care about these issues. We're both trying to figure out what we can do to make the world a better place. What separates me from you? Like, sure, I might be doing X, Y, Z, but I don't know. It just made me think about how maybe I need to, maybe the language around that needs to be considered a bit more. I think so. And I also think um, people associate like activism with someone holding a placard at a rally. Mm. Oh, well, if you do that, you're an activist, you know. It's, it's, it's not true, you know. Like, I mean, it's just someone being active at a rally. But speaking of rallies, um, most recently, recently you attended a rally in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, the March for Justice rallies. How was that? Yeah, so that was on March 15th. There were um, marches all and rallies all over Australia um, and that was in response to what's happening at in politics at the moment, over the past few weeks, there's been many allegations. Um, I should probably give a bit of a trigger warning here. Well, just before you start, like just just for those that may live under a rock and have no idea what's going on and, and don't follow the, the current news and media, mm-hmm. give us, can you give us a breakdown? And if you want to do a trigger warning, let's go. Sure. So trigger warning for sexual assault. Um, this started... I think late February um, when a young woman called Brittany Higgins um, has come out and alleged that she was raped in parliament by a political staffer. Um, They, I don't, I don't know how much detail I should go into here, but um, they were, she was drunk and the person took her into parliament and, and took advantage of her and she was raped literally in her, in the office of an MP that she worked for. Uh, and they treated it as a political issue and basically tried to cover it up and didn't give her a lot of support. Uh, and she came out with those allegations. She was inspired by um, Grace Tame who's a sexual assault survivor and advocate. She won the Australian of the Year Award uh, and she saw Grace Tame and a picture of Scott Morrison together. And Brittany was really upset and outraged at that, thinking at the hypocrisy of Scott Morrison standing next to someone professing to care about these issues when she knew from her own experience that they actually don't care. So she was empowered and inspired to come out and tell her story. And since then there's been... Revelation after revelation, Christian Porter was then the following week. There were um, allegations of rape from uh, a few decades ago now when he was younger, um, of raping a 16-year-old woman who then actually took her life last year. Um, And he's the Attorney General, Christian Porter. Sorry, let me know if um, if I need to clarify anything. But he's basically the highest law officer in the country. So he, any matter of law, he's the ultimate person. So the fact that he's been accused of a crime that's so terrible and horrible, um, even if it can't be pursued criminally anymore because the victim is, is unfortunately now dead, um, it still needs to be taken seriously and the government still needs to be taken that seriously, especially given the amount of power that he has and the questions, the the character, the question of character that, um, comes into it. So that happened and then after that, that's when the March for Justice um, 
happened because people were so outraged and really, really particular outraged at um, the government's response of um, basically not doing anything and trying to um, d- dismiss it. Um, no one's lost their job as of yet. I think they're just going to probably reshuffle, uh, move a few people around and hope that it blows over. Um, and obvi- one in five women in Australia have experienced sexual assault. So for a lot of women, um, it's really personal um, and everyone could recognise and felt um, really personally upset and angry because you can see that in your own lives um, of women not being believed and women's issues and particularly um, violence against women not being taken seriously and the structures and the impunity basically of powerful men um, being able to do do that stuff and think that they can get away with it. So that's what the March for Justice was about. Um, and there were tens of thousands of women all across the country who who rallied and mobilised to basically call on our government to to do better, um, to stand up against sexism and misogyny and for there to be accountability, I think, is really the main issue. Um, we need to hold people accountable for their actions. It's not much we're asking for, you know. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's a huge issue and it's not just in parliament. It's a, it's a societal issue but we – it needs to start somewhere and it should start at the top. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, There's been even more rel- yeah. revelations <laughs> si- since. It's it's yeah. horrifying. It's going to continue. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. How are you feeling personally? Um. Yeah, yeah. Like I know some some women who can't look at the news at the moment because there's just so much. Um. And it's really triggering and emotionally exhausting. I spoke to my mum last night. She just said she was constantly angry all of the time. Um, and because there's been new thing after new thing, there's been like staffers who've, who were like filming themselves, masturbating on people's desks and sending different things around. There's been people, um, you know, bringing sex workers in and having sex and, you know, um, what else is the recent one? Other various different people being accused of sexual assault and harassment. There's just revelation after revelation. And it is honestly, I haven't like kept abreast of it as much as I like, I mean, as much as I could because it is a bit much. And um, it's also very easy to get desensitized too. And I think that that's ultimately what they're hoping for because. It takes a lot. It's a huge emotional toll to continue to keep up the pressure and the momentum in order for something to happen and to keep caring about it. And you either burn out emotionally or you become so desensitized that it's like you don't care anymore. It's just, oh, it's another thing. Like, of course it is. We already know the politicians are corrupt, blah, blah, blah. Um, So it can be hard to keep up momentum. And for me, I think I'm trying to strike that balance of like, knowing enough to know what's happening but like being careful and taking breaks from the news when I need to as well um and again it comes back to I do think I've been really lucky I haven't had um been sexually assaulted yet um so I think for me as well it's it's fundamentally just less triggering um 
so that's why I think it's also, again, important for me to keep abreast of it because I can and then take action. But, yeah, the rally was, like, super powerful. Um, I was going to ask that. What, describe the energy and the vibe at the rally on the day. Yeah, it's, it's like it was one of the biggest mobilizations for women's rights in recent decades. Um, I wasn't at Canberra. I was at Sydney. Some family members went to Canberra, um, so they got to see Brittany Higgins speak. Um, I was at the Sydney rally and, yeah, so many women coming together were all wearing black um, to mourn um, and grieve the the loss of, of life of women but also the trauma and the suffering because um, that's one of the huge impacts of being sexually assaulted. It does fundamentally change the rest of your life, unfortunately. Um, so it was re- really powerful hearing different different people speak, some Indigenous women. Um, Indigenous women disproportionately suffer um, higher rates of, of sexual violence and domestic violence, and it's the feminist movement needs to do better to include them um, and other women of colour in in the conversation. I have to say I was I was at the back, so I wasn't I couldn't really hear too much, which I'm kind of used to at this point of rallies. I'm like, you know, if I can hear the speeches, it's a bit of a bonus, but not necessarily what I expect. But I mean it's a good sign because that means there's heaps of people. Like I think there were like twenty thousand or so. Um and then we marched, um, you know, chanting, and that's always really powerful as well, all coming together with the signs. And I think it's really important to show um, because you can be angry online and in your own homes and talking to people, but it is important to actually get out and demonstrate the size and extent of the amount of people who care about this issue. And it was really great to see a lot of men there as well um, standing in solidarity because it's not it's not a women's issue. It's fundamentally you know, 97% of perpetrators are men and whether that's abusing women or men or non-binary people, most of the perpetrators are men. So really it is a men's issue. Um, And I think for too long maybe guys have kind of just opted out and been like, oh, you know, it's a bit of a women's thing so I'm not going to like. And they're probably scared of having an opinion and, I mean, kind of fair enough. I'd be a bit scared too (laughs) maybe sometimes Mm. of people's response but I think that – it's it's really good when when men um do step up and be allies and listen. Um, yeah, I was just there. I was busy handing out stickers. Actually, <laughs> I had all these stickers, mm. so I was just going through the crowd handing them out. Were you representing the Tomorrow Movement? No, I, um, I was there. I mean, I took some Amnesty signs, so I was kind of there with Amnesty. Um, we do obviously women's rights is um. A lot of what we do, not necessarily in Australia, um, a lot of overseas work. Um, although we are going to be working in conjunction with different community organisations pushing for coercive control to be criminalised. So that's um, basically a form of domestic violence that's not physical violence but the psychological um, impacts and the co the coercion and, and manipulation um, that that occurs in a domestic violence conte- context that actually has a longer has more long term impacts um, in terms of suffering and trauma than the physical injuries. So, um, 
and that's currently not criminalized. So technically you can be abusing your partner, using coercive control, what, not touch them and get away we, with it. Why do you think it's not criminalized? Um, it's difficult to define, um, but I also think there's it's just been an evolving of our understanding of domestic abuse, I should say. Um, do you think that's continuing? Yes. Do you think there's a lot of confusion and ignorance around what the definition of domestic violence is? Definitely. I think a lot of people you think about it as hitting, you know. That's that's the first place most people's minds go. Yeah, but someone can be in a – I think a lot of – I've been using domestic violence, which is the common term, but there has been a shift towards domestic abuse as maybe a better wave. Um, understanding it because of that association of violence with being like a physical thing. Yes. Um, so I should be saying domestic abuse. Um, but, yeah, people can be in that situation and not, not actually be hit at all, but they will um, suffer the suffer emotional abuse, verbal abuse, gaslighting, which is where someone convinces you that you're crazy and, and – um, you know what's funny? Like I didn't understand what gaslighting meant, and mm. um, and I'm maybe I'm going to assume there's other people out there who don't know what it means, and it's a very interesting term that one, and it's, um and it originates back to some story about a um some like some couple that lived in a castle, and it was all and their all the lighting was from gas lamps, mm. and um, the husband wanted to make his wife feel like she was going crazy. So he got all their servants every night just to dim the the gas lamps, just like a notch or two every night. And then he told them all that if his wife asks, is it dark in here or darker, they're to say, no, it's just normal. And um, so then he he did that every night and then she'd come, oh, is it dark in here tonight? Oh, no, darling, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And I was like, I was like, oh, is that, the ori- is that the original story of what gaslighting is? Like, yeah, just – yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the sorry, etymology. A bit of a tangent, but I just like – because it's popped up a few times. I'm like, what, is, what exactly is gaslighting and where did where did it come from? Where did that terminology come from? Yeah, it's being used a lot now and it more of a – So effectively it's um, not a deception or – Kind of undermining of your sense of reality and your own um, perception of your own experience basically – uh, so convincing you that you are your perception on reality is not true. That okay. That, yeah, I think that's really that's concise. Good one. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, mm. that you're crazy or making things up or that. Yeah, I think it's like about undermining your own um, understanding of your own experience, and that. So that that can be used as a tool um, of abuse, and basically, there's a whole range of different things that fall under coercive control, and. Um, that there's now a huge push for that to be recognised as a crime um, so that people can actually do something about it and, and people can be held accountable and there's options for victims because um, at the moment there's not a lot of options. And it's also um, helps to educate people as well because sometimes women um, or other people in those situations, they don't even know that they're, they're in domestic abuse because they, they, they say, oh, but he hasn't hit me. You know, so it's not domestic abuse. So it's it's also about raising awareness about all the different ways um, that 
yeah, you can be in an abusive relationship. Mm. And like, like you said, I think, yeah, defining uh, the situation would be very challenging, especially because, you know, human relationships are complex on all levels, whether mm. they're intimate, professional, and everything in between. And uh, human nature in our imperfection, um, people do behaviours that they may not be aware of that are harmful to others, mm-hmm. and especially in relationships. So it could be happening on both sides. And I guess that's what makes it challenging um, to, I guess, for, I guess, legal systems mm. to, um, I guess, uh, clearly identify and, and, I guess, seek justice for. Would that be? It's yeah. a difficult thing to define because exactly, you know, what di- what differentiates a toxic relationship or an unhealthy relationship between a relationship of domestic abuse and coercive control. Um, but they've tried to do that by talking about it as a systemic or pattern of behaviour over time um, that and that creates a power differential between the two people. Um, so it's not just like having a heated argument and saying something that you regret or maybe being a bit too, maybe your insecurities are coming out and you're tr- you're trying to control aspects of your, your partner and um, maybe that's not the best example, but there is a, a they've tried to build in a, a difference so that it can clearly define okay. <clears throat> what it is as distinguished from, uh, yeah, just toxic relationships. Okay, so like it, it, it's moving to, it's, I mean, it's evolving and moving closer to a more clearly defined you know, outline of, of what those behaviours are and what they mean and, and, yeah. and how they how they could be, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, punished <laughs> or, mm. or, or, yeah, or justice served on. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, like accountability. Accountability. Um, yeah, and justice for the victims. Mm. But it's, it's progress, not perfection, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to constantly evolve. Our understanding of consent is evolving um constantly um i think it's just part of the the process and our laws trying to keep up with the cultural changes um it's a bit of a back and forth process um but i think it's really it's going to it's extremely important that this does get passed so it's really great to see that um that this is now happening there's going to be a big push for it this year and in the following years so hopefully we can make that change happen um because yeah domestic it's like one woman's killed a week and two minutes every every two minutes there's um globally no in australia in australia one woman's killed a week by the intimate partner i thought not every two because you said every two minutes every two minutes is um the police will get a call on a domestic abuse matter right yeah and usually those calls are more in relation to physical violence Right, so and then there's all the other calls that don't get made mm. in, in regards to other forms of violence. Mm. Yeah, well, it takes a lot for someone to get to, to that make, point to of calling call, the police. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow, so it's, it's big. Yeah, yeah, it's huge and it's really the issue that um, I think we need to be doing a lot more on in terms of women's rights. It's the most pressing issue that's actually having – that's actually killing women um, mm. in this country, so – you know, it's it's overwhelming to hear and it's overwhelming when I, you know, reflect on our political system 
Uh, and I, you know, my mind just goes, and I said this on the last podcast, my mind just goes to, oh, the problem's too big, like, and it's so broken. And this is just another example of highlighting an already broken system. Mm. Um, are we making progress though? Are we, do you think, do you feel like progress is being made in terms of creating equity and creating equality? Moving, are we moving towards equitable models in our society? For just in general? Oh, for, well, for human rights or, and specifically for women and minority groups. Do you think we are prog- making progress? Like let's say if, you, if we went back five years, mm. what do you think? No, I definitely think we when are. Because when, when I've seen that stuff going on most recently with our politicians – I just was like, oh, fuck, we've gone backwards. Like, are we, we're back in the 50s, man. Are you serious? That's, that, that's what I kept, like, yeah, that's what I kept thinking. Yeah, I don't think we've gone backwards. I think that it actually demonstrates the fact that people are so outraged and the fact that there's a national conversation happening and that people are out in the streets and that people are actually saying, no, this is unacceptable, demonstrates that there has been a change and also the fact that um, people now and many um, victims and survivors are feeling that they can come out and that they will be believed. That's a change because many people don't and they won't come out for many, many years. Um, It's actually very normal for people to only talk about it many years after it's happened um, because they're scared about their response. And I think that it speaks to the change. Me too has actually had a huge impact on that, um, shifting the conversation um, and raising awareness um, to allow this this to happen. And I think this is kind of our, our Me Too moment in Australia where people are finally saying no enough is enough and people are finding their voice and holding um, power, speaking truth to power. Um, so, yeah, I think there has been change, but I think it's important that we don't make assumptions that change is inevitable. Progress isn't something that just comes through the passing of time. Rights can be taken away um, and it's a roller coaster, you know. So it's always important that we are continuing to um, hold people accountable and and call for justice to make sure that we are progressing forward um, and not be complacent. Um, and, yeah, it's disappointing but at the same time, you know, like this, these things take time and these systems that we have in place are hundreds of years old. So how can we, like, I'm like, of course it's still, of yeah. course it's still like um, crap because we're still using the same systems that have been set up by like a bunch of old white men in colonial times. It keeps coming back to that. <laughs> you know, it really does. And, you know, I was just like thinking about how, Let's face it. As a as a, a as a society and our, the hum, us humans of the last year, we've had so much, and and beyond that, like especially especially Australians with the bushfires the year before, we've just had so much to contend with in mm. so many different ways. And then when I guess when this most recent issue came up, I just felt like I just feels like. We're in this constant state of catastrophe mm. and, and I think people are just getting exhausted and it's depressing and and I must admit, and I mean I've been saying this a lot and I've done it for a while, I really have to regulate my consumption of mainstream media mm. and for a, a personal well-being 
perspective, from a personal well-being perspective. Yeah. Because otherwise it can be just completely exhausting when you start to go down different rabbit holes in your Definitely. mind of what needs to be fixed and, and um, yeah. But I love what you said, like complacency is the devil. Like we have to be wary of complacency. Like it, it's, it's constantly – Raising awareness, engaging in conversation. Mm. I mean that, and that's where the that's where the healing comes from. That's where the ideas are spread, and and we have the means to do it more than ever. Mm. Okay, through through all our outlets, like use our personal platforms and outlets for good, not narcissism. You mm. know? So it's a tricky. It's it is a tricky balance, and I think that you shouldn't. You know, you're well within your right, and that's completely valid to, to limit your news consumption for well-being. I think that's so important. Um, we all need to be practicing self-care and, and taking care of ourselves first um, because we can't if – I mean, that's – I don't actually like saying that you have to take care of yourself first before you do anything else because I don't Why? actually believe that. Why? I think some people – You don't think you should take care of yourself first? I do, but I don't. I think some people say, for example, oh, what's the thing they say? Like, oh, you need to love yourself first before you can, like, love other people. And mm. I think it can get a little bit murky. Like, people who, for example, if you have a mental health issue, you don't have to fix that, quote, unquote, fix that, like, mm. in order to be in a relationship and to be loved. Like, but I think – um it's important to take care of your own well-being um, so that you have the – so that you are able to care for others and obviously that comes first. You need to be well enough yourself in order to give back to others. Mm. Um, does that make sense? It makes perfect about sense. The- <laughs> well, it makes sense. Because, I mean, firstly, I think like, yeah, I, I personally believe if you're not in a good state – you. you you're no good to anyone else in terms of you don't. You're not going to have the actual physical or mental energy to help other people. Mm. So um, it's it's. I think that's important. It's kind of like oh, I just thought the, the analogy of being on an airplane. You know, when the <laughs> you got to put your face yeah. mask on first so you can breathe, so you can then help others because otherwise you're not going to be able to breathe and you're going to be no use to anyone. Exactly. But I also believe that when you like you use the example of mental health issues, I I think that that is actually also your, your issue is also a gift that you can then use to help other people and have a shared experience. Mm. And um, you can utilise it as a tool yeah, that's as a nice opposed to a defect. Yeah. And and I think once you ch- that, that perspective shift on it, it's like, hey, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's challenging. It's hard. But I can use this because there's other people who are also suffering and let's – Let's do it together because uh, a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm. So, yeah. It allows you to have deeper empathy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I think it's more about like you don't have to be perfect or have all of – you know, there's no one that doesn't have any kind of like issues or personal struggles. So you're never going to get to that point. Um, So, you know, before you can do X, Y, Z. Um, So it's a balance of of those things if that – Makes sense. It makes sense. It makes so much sense. Whew. Listen, it's just um, like, yeah, I'm so I'm so interested in what you're talking about, and I'm so glad you shared that stuff about the rallies, um, because I did notice that I've noticed you're someone who's not overly active on social media, but then recently you've been very active on social media, and with some of the some of the stuff you've been involved in, it's been fantastic. So, are you still 
like we spoke about this last time, you are part of the Tomorrow Movement. So what's give us an update on the Tomorrow Movement. What's going on there? Sure. Yeah, I go through stages on my Instagram. I feel like it's either nothing or like a lot. <laughs> I must admit when you put something up, I, I, I listen, I look at it, but I don't just scroll past it. It's like, well, if she's putting something up, it's because she really cares about it. Like it's significant. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I try. I'm like, it's going to be funny when I start like getting more used to Instagram and posting just things in my life. People are going to be like, oh, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> um uh, tomorrow movement. So we did some training recently um, and basically we're gearing up for a big day of action on May 4th um, calling for a climate jobs guarantee, which is one of our essential um, demands and things that we're fighting for. So a climate jobs guarantee is basically a transformative plan um, that will create thousands of good jobs um, and guarantee a good job to everyone who wants one and address um, the climate crisis and economic crisis that we're fa- facing at the scale and speed necessary. So we're basically calling on politicians to um, actually recognise the scale of what we're facing and act with the urgency that that requires um, because now we've only got like nine and a half years until – uh, 2030, which is when scientists have said is likely to be the tipping point of the point of no return, basically, where things just go out of control and, and spiral. Um, so we've got like 10 years, less than 10 years to seriously do everything that we can to take to tackle the climate crisis. Um, and the only way that we can act at the scale necessary is through government action. Individual action is important, um, but we're really running out of time and governments with the current system that we have, they do have the power to enact mass changes really quickly. We saw that with COVID, you know, they can actually put in place policies that overnight, overnight, they put in place policies that lifted Australians out of poverty. Isn't isn't that good? Like let like let's use let's use that example mm. all the time because it's like hey look you you can you can make you can pass things quick you can get things changed really exactly quick. if you wanted to great if you want to yeah yeah if it's in your best interest exactly and like wars when wars happen there's huge mobilizations and changes possible so it is you know governments can do it they just don't want to because there's no political will and because they're too um, influenced by the impact of big business, which um, is choking our democracy um, and both of our major parties are beholden to big business interests at the moment. Um, and part of our strategy is actually trying to break the hold of big business on on the Labor Party um, as the party of supposedly the people that has a history of alignment with the unions and working class um, and trying to have them um, force them to have more ambitious climate policy basically that that um, would lift all Australians out of poverty um, and address the climate crisis so we're kind of trying to tackle two things at, at once um, which is a lot but I think that it's you know this is a really unique opportunity to actually have solutions that work for everyone one of the dangers of um, kind of 
the transition that we're seeing at the moment away from fossil fuels into more of renewable energy is that a lot of these huge mega companies are just moving to renewable energy, but the same structures of inequality is still being replicated. Um, So we want to actually use this as a chance to change the systems um, so that it's a more equitable society for everyone and that other people um, can see justice and it's not just big business continuing to dominate everyone for their own profits, basically. Like you'd agree that the climate crisis requires long-term solutions, correct? Mm-hmm. Would you agree with me if I said that our political structure of four-year terms is inhibiting um, real um, strategic plans? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the c- primary concern is just getting elected. It's all, it's very short term. Our whole, I mean. So, the, okay, and it's short term. And so then they're putting in appealing, immediate, short term, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, policies to get the vote, you know, because people want to see change now. Mm. But when it comes to the climate crisis, that all goes out the window. Yeah. So what, okay, here's, I'm going to put you on the spot, what's the solution? (laughs) Well, we would say that the climate jobs guarantee is tomorrow movement, you know, that's the solution that we're putting forward. Um, But I think that that's one of the fundamental issues with climate change is that it is a long-term thing. And humans fundamentally, like our brains just don't think like that. Um, We're concerned with our immediate everyday things things that are impacting our life and it's really difficult to care a lot about something that feels so far away Mm. and in the future even though we have had bushfires last year even though we've just had floods recently and we're going to see more and more of that in the future it's really hard to uh continue to care about that and also it's not a unfortunately it's not a voting issue the vast majority of australians actually want to see stronger action on climate change but it won't shift their vote and that's the real annoying thing um so in terms of the yeah the solution i mean i don't think people there is a solution Uh, i think we all need to there's many there's a multitude of solutions basically um and there's many different things that need to be changed um because there's you know overseas uh and other countries need to be doing their bit as well but you know we're here in australia so we can do our bit um, and I think fundamentally the government needs to take action. It's not enough for us as individuals. It's, it's fun. It's also just not our fault either. Um, and it's up to the government to take action, um, to do the best that they can, um, to address these issues and mitigate. Cause unfortunately we're at the point now where a lot of this is already locked in. So we're already it's there's already a guaranteed um, percentage of of warming. So yeah, I feel like I don't know if I answered that. I went a bit. No, away it, did. it did. I mean, and it's. Uh, I mean, that was a big question. It's it, it is big, but like, who cares? Like, let's have the big questions. Let's have the, you know, let's let's surmise. Let's 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 brainstorm because, mm. I mean, again, you know, again, like. I just think you got to talk about it, even though it may seem it, it's hard for me to talk about because I, I used this term last time. Like I'm feeling very jaded, you know. But I'm like I'm like no, no, no. Just push through the jadedness and just keep keep addressing it. Keep think about it sometimes, like, and just develop a level of consciousness. 
don't put your head in the sand. Mm. And, and I think that that's that's something I'm personally working on. It's like, I yeah. think, yeah, I think a lot of people are really um, jaded with politics, and then it, uh, I think that's why we've seen a lot of like the popularization of individual action on environmental issues, like focusing on reducing your own waste and plastic consumption, and um, you know, buying ethically and conscious consumption and things like that, because it feels more in your control. It's something that you can do. Thank you. And then you feel good about it. Um, and that's important for people. And I can understand why people go down that path. But I also think that it's really important that we have the collective action, the political action, because that it's a lot harder to achieve, but it gets you the best like bang for your buck. <laughs> like for me, that's why I pursue that because it's like, well, if I'm going to be putting my energy anywhere, it's going to be the one with the most that's the most effective yeah. that will cause the greatest amount of change um and to get more specific about the solutions like there people um some things that people are calling for are to stop all new fossil fuel projects basically um so immediately or not immediately but actually having a plan to stop um fossil fuel projects and the creation of new um coal um oil and gas mining um and having a just transition. So there's actually a plan to bring those workers and the people and the communities that will be impacted along so that they're not left behind um, and they should be at the forefront of creating those solutions that work with their com- for their communities. Uh, we need to have massive investment in renewables and technology, um, which we know will need to be uh, an important part of the of the solution in terms of mitigation strategies. Um, and working again, um, what another important thing is utilizing first nations knowledge, um, about how to manage the, the environment, um, which they've been doing for tens of thousands of years. Uh, so working with first nations people to come up with more sustainable solutions for environmental management, um, community engagement. People engage the community and then give the, give them some ownership, give them some personal investment in it. Mm. You know, like as opposed to making them feel segregated or, and then decisions being made on their behalf by people who don't really understand what it, what it's like mm. and live in to live in that situation. And I'm not just talking about our First Nations people either. I'm just talking about any communities, yeah, like, where governments come in and and regulate or change or put policy in. And I think. Um, that's a really easy one for governments to to implement. It's just like, yeah, let's engage the community in the process. And in, in effect, it could even create, I mean, like you said, mitigate problems later on as well, like and more, more sustainable solutions that are enduring and enriching. Mm. Mm, well, communities know best what they need. Exactly. Um, And that's part of the climate jobs guarantee is that the government should be working with communities um, and creating jobs on the ground. That doesn't necessarily have to be in, you know, related specifically to the climate. It could also be around caring and teaching um, and other, a range of other different work that would serve the community. Um, And the government, it's, Another part of it is I think we need to rebuild the public sector. Uh, a lot of, unfortunately, previously um, 
government services have been privatized, like education, healthcare, um, energy. They've all been sold off to the private sector so that it's more about a profit-based model. And I think we need to um, actually take that back into government-owned mm-hmm. so that we can have more control over the quality and that it also improves the working conditions for the people as well. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're right. Mm. This is There's many other solutions <laughs> that people are also – I mean, there's so many people doing important things and that's the thing. Like these are some more top-level policies. Yeah. But there's p- people on the ground doing things. There's people um, – you know, it's important to be coming up with different like business models and alternatives to the things that we're currently doing as well. So it's it's a, it's a whole – there's so much to do and people can find their own um, area in which they can make a difference because I think most people now are quite concerned. Yeah, I think so. I feel like there's a level of consciousness growing. Mm. People are getting more and more concerned. I really do believe that – that's one of the best things to come out of the pandemic. You know, people have had more time to step back and think and realise and look at the big issues. And, yeah, it's good, man. We're in, a, we're in a really interesting time in the world. I feel like – I really feel like we're on the cusp of of of, a, of real change, you know. But also a cult, there's a like a cultural shift occurring, a massive cultural shift. Mm. Now, the biggest I've seen in my lifetime, like I'm not that old. I'm older than you, but I still I've, I see it. Like I've never seen, I've never seen this sort of stuff happening in the world before in terms of the the conversations that people are having and the topics that we're talking about. You know, I haven't seen that level of it. You know, it's it's good. Mm. It's good. It's exhausting. Mm. Yeah. Well, we can also. I mean, there has been a huge history of of protest, um, especially in the 1960s. I think yeah. is there's huge cultural change, and a lot of that came about with mass movements um, and Thank you. getting out on the streets. So I think we're probably going to be seeing, we're starting to see some of that happen now. Can I ask at the rally recently, what was the police presence like? Um, well, I've been to a few rallies recently. Well, the, okay, <laughs> um, sorry, the one, the, most the International Justice one? Rally. Oh, would- the March for Justice Rally uh, was pretty, like, safe. Um, I think that it would have been really bad move. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't um a lot planned in terms of like civil disobedience and disruption. It was kind of just your standard rally, so they shut and they would have had to have notified the police and things like that because yeah. it was so large you have to shut down streets. But I have gone to a rally recently in Wollongong um that was a climate rally um for the the international school strikes or Fridays for Future movement that Greta Thunberg is kind of like Amazing. The, yep. Um head of or the face of uh that was last friday oh my god was that only last friday whoa (laughs) um and the police there were actually pretty rough they were pushing some of the protesters Mm. they had um they were up on the horses so they were mounted police and they and they were shoving young people um onto the, was, the street were they COVID safe events? I mean, was was that and the one was that something that came up while you were there? I mean, there were some people wearing masks. They had hand sanitizer and like they recommended people to sign into a QR code. Um, but I feel like it was definitely under the limit of it was within the current restrictions, gotcha. the the rules. 
Um, and I think the police were just a lot more organised. And to be fair, like people did try and get onto the street and occupy and shut down traffic. Um, so, you know, they're trying to stop that from happening. Um, I know, but do you think? Look, do you think that's? Ne- do you think it's necessary to really get people to to make an impact? That 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 level of militancy is that a word? But to be a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I mean, I'll say it. I, I don't. I don't, ad- I don't advocate for violence at all. But I question: Are we having violence perpetuated upon us by? our current leaders and structures and when do we when do we start to push back i i I kind of feel like and i'm generalizing and it's my opinion but i feel like many australians are quite um complacent complacent and submissive and compared to compared to other countries i mean i i often think about france for some reason that like they they've they're their communities and their society is very vocal. That, that if there's any violation of their or erosion of their civil liberties, they kick back, man. Mm. You know, we, we don't do we, we don't do that. Which is, again, I'm not advocating for those levels of extremism where there's you know um, any sort of violence or damage or anything like that. But I I do think that we need to exercise our civil rights a little bit uh, more. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Staunchly. Mm. Um, again, that's just my I opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to be staunch because let's face it, we're being staunched. Mm. I yeah. think, yeah, I think there is a um, people don't understand maybe the power of protest in Australia I as don't much. Think they do. And I, I can kind of understand. I've had to also like. The other day at the rally when people were trying to go onto the street and the police were there in a line trying to, like, push us back, I was a bit like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah. Like, It's challenging my own kind of deferral to authority and wanting to be, you know, yeah. like a good citizen and not wanting to upset people and thinking, am I doing the right thing? And mm. I can understand why people look at things like that and look at people occupying and doing sit-ins and, um, and are confused and annoyed maybe because they're like it, it is mildly inconvenient for them to be late to work or something. But if we look at history, these are the actions that actually have worked. There's a Thank reason you. why people are doing it. Yeah. And there is a di- big difference between civil disobedience and Thank nonviolent you. direct action and actual like violence. Yes. Um, a lot of these things, no one's being hurt. It's just that you're – you know, is creating disrupt disruption um, to the normal processes of of day to day life, and um, that's essential. And many many important civil rights that we take for granted today have been won using those same tactics. Um, that's you know, you mentioned Martin Luther King before. Yeah, I, I kind of really messed that quote up. I feel so <laughs> stupid because he's got he said so much good stuff. But oh, anyway, keep I, going. I mean, <laughs> I don't really know the, all the all of his quotes either obviously um yeah but like the um black civil rights movement in the u.s employed very similar tactics um even black lives matter is a recent example thank you where people were taking to the streets and protesting for um weeks and weeks and they actually and it worked and you know you can you can disagree but 
I'd, you know, challenge those people to be like, well, what do you suggest then? You know? what? Yeah. Well, that's, that's it. I- and we wouldn't also, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't have to. That's the thing. It's like yeah. people have tried to use the proper channels. We try to, you know, email our representatives and ask our representatives to to do certain things. Um, we we exercise our right to vote. Um, we follow the rules, and then it doesn't work. So we we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't feel that that it was necessary. And with a lot of these issues, unfortunately you know, there isn't that leadership and we need to be showing up, uh, calling on our leaders to do better. Agreed. And Martin Luther King quote was, because <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't stuff that up. He said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Mm. And I was like, simple, it's true. Like if you keep asking yourself that question, what are you doing for others? And I also, also think it's a life hack in terms of getting to those good feelings. So it's win-win. It, it's a win-win because hey, I like to feel good. Yeah, you know, call me call me crazy. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ah, oh, this is great, Manny. I, oh, God, I love talking to you. I, could, I love listening to your perspective on things. It's been so great. Um, yeah, like I kind of feel like we covered all the things I wanted to talk about today. So, um, I'm going to just launch into. I ask all guests to come with a cause. So. God, I mean, you've already advocated for so much, but is there a specific, um, something specific you'd like to, to direct people to so they can also participate and be active in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to choose a cause today um, to help Indigenous and First Nations women um, because, you know, we're hearing a lot at the moment about um how women are treated in Australia in sexual assault um, and unfortunately that does disproportionately affect First Nations women. 75 to 90%, depending on how you measure it, of Indigenous women have experienced domestic or sexual violence, which is just appalling. Uh, so I wanted to uh, direct people to support Majangal, which is a community service based in Redfern in Sydney, and they it's all um, owned by and and led by um, Aboriginal women, which is really really important when talking about these solutions that they're actually controlled by First Nations people, um, and they work with vulnerable young women, helping them uh, who are facing domestic violence, um, helping them with legal support, with material support, um, with shelter, also educational programs so that they know their rights and other empowerment programs um, as well. And they're doing some really amazing work out of Sydney, so um, on Gadigal land. Um so, yes, please support Mudjungal with a donation um, that will directly affect the lives of vulnerable First Nations women in Redfern and Sydney and surrounds. Epic. And there's a link to that in this episode's show notes. Uh, whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on, you'll be able to find that link uh, in the show notes. Um, this podcast is also available on a variety of platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict and Overcast uh, and Google Podcasts. And so please subscribe, leave a review. It just helps me to keep going weekly and getting epic humans such as Manisha to share her voice and um, 
inspire because you are inspirational let's face it and i you keep saying you're not but i think you are <laughs> anyway so <laughs> what are you what are you scratching your face up for? <laughs> it's just awkward i don't know sorry i'm I, I, sorry if i made you feel awkward no thank you can um, you speak into the microphone by the way sorry thanks yeah, that's um, awkward. Thank you, you're on a podcast you're speaking to the microphone manisha jeez i'm just kidding it's kind of yeah please support Shan and this great podcast. <laughs> you're also inspirational. You know, you're all, you're um, lifting other people's, giving other people a platform, um, and I think that that's that's really important. So well done. Yeah, thanks. I wonder if I'm actually doing anything. <laughs> but again, like I kind of feel like, well, it's doing something's better than nothing. Yeah, and, exactly. And I just feel like, yeah, if I can give people who are much more intelligent and conscious and enlightened than me uh, uh, a place for, to have a voice, well, maybe I'm doing that's – my, that's my little contribution, you know. That's my form of activism maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Start a podcast but don't make it better than mine. Okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, so listen, Manisha, uh, I've got a gift for you. Now you've already got a pair of these but do you want another pair of window soles? Sure, yay, but thank you. You had an issue with the, what happened to the last – you got a pair last time, what happened? Tell us all about it. Oh, in, in, I just have some awkward-sized feet. What do you mean you got a – I have it, little flippers. But it's not your feet. Maybe it's Indosol. Maybe they. Maybe their shoes are too narrow. No, I think it might have just been I probably ordered the wrong size. So I'm happy to give another, another – You want another pair? Another crack with the right size this yeah, time. Just in time for winter. You can wear them with socks, you know. So socks and sandals like – yeah, I don't have like slippers around the house, so maybe that's I can use, you know, with with the socks, yeah, socks yeah. and sandals. Socks and look. sandals, you can I go, can rock that. Would you go in public with them, socks and sandals? Yes, maybe. Come on, I've seen kid, the kids are doing it. I've seen this really cool kid the other day. He had socks and Crocs. Oh, and I mean, that's I, bold. And I hate Crocs. Right, but Crocs are like becoming a thing and in that ironic the, way. You know, like that's, it, that's yeah. It. It's, that's what it is. It's ironic fashion. Is it, that what it is? It's ironic until it gets to the point where it's it's not and people are just embrace it. Like the mullet, you know, that I feel like that was like ironic and that's now it's ironic. just cool again. Well, it just then it just – people just became desensitized mm. to the mullet. You know. Fashion is circular. It yeah. is. I try not to discriminate against anyone, <laughs> but if you've got a mullet, like I can't help it. I might discriminate against you in some way. <laughs> You'll like, still judge them. Like I'll cross the street or I won't talk to you. Okay. Well, Is that bad? Oh, I've I've come to love the mullet again. What? Have you seen – some people look really sexy with a mullet. I mean sexy people look sexy wearing anything, I think. Get off the podcast. <laughs> okay, time to call it wrap. <laughs> Just kidding. Really? You really think the mullet's sexy? Dude, you know, like, oh, my God, there's so many mullet people out there I right think now sexy going, people yes. are sexy. They can wear, you know, like Miley Cyrus has a mullet now. Yeah, I know. She'd look good in, uh, with anything. Sexy people are just sexy. Yeah. They make things subject, cool and they convince though. unsexy people like me that I can pull it off and then. Isn't <laughs> sexiness subjective? Yeah, yeah. It must be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, there's some science behind what people find attractive, but maybe really? we won't go into that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. It, just in terms of like symmetry. Oh, Okay. But, okay, well, who dictates who dictates that symmetry then? Is it because of all the images that are created in magazines in the fashion industry and media? Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> why why is symmetry sexy? Ooh. And is it biological? Like does it tap into something biological when we want to procreate? That we look I don't for know to that extent, but there has been, I mean, research that like people will generally perceive people with symmetrical faces and that's like a scientific thing, like the maths can determine symmetry. People will perceive people with symmetrical um faces is more attractive but obviously attractive as in they want to procreate with them no i don't think that's necessarily like i can find people attractive and not want to procreate okay would you say the same or do you want to procreate with everyone that you find attractive i told you you're not allowed to ask me questions (laughs) i'm just kidding you can can ask me questions um but obviously you know media media plays a huge role in determining beauty standards which yeah no that sucks but i'm just thinking i wonder if it is a biological thing ultimately. I'm not saying, yeah, we want to procreate with everyone you find attractive. But why are we attracted to people? I don't know. You know, like. I think. Why do we become attracted to them, is it? Because, I mean, ultimately is it because they're a potential a potential person you want to procreate with or not? Or just be in love with? I, I think there's a whole, It would. it's very subjective. Like there's probably an element of biology and there's also a strong element of like the environment that you grew up in and what's, you know, mm-hmm. we're being told uh, is beautiful and attractive, but also, you know, what you want in a partner, whether it's, you know, the physical attractive elements or like their actual personality. What are you, what are you more attracted to, um, personality or, or, or physical, like appear, appearance? Definitely personality. I mean, you have to obviously have some element of physical attraction for like a romantic or sexual partner. But um, I think for me, having a good personality increases your um, attraction or my attraction to you. Mm. I think I think that's pretty innate for most people. Hmm, it's good. Sorry. It's what about you? <sighs> you told questions. me I could ask questions. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's let's be straight up. Like. I'm definitely personality, but as a younger man, you know, um, it was maybe not personality. It was just had to be a physical, the physical appearance and attract, and had to be that. That was maybe first. That's the number one thing, and I, th- I still think that is necessary for sure. But um, I guess if it's you know when you really want to live this life in conjunction with another human and experience this, whatever this is together, you want someone that you can. You can connect with emotionally and, and you know, personally and have good conversations with and I think that is so fundamental because really I think people are just so – we don't, none of us want to be lonely. Yeah. And you, you'd see that with Lifeline. I think so much of it must come down to like sheer loneliness. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it depends on what you're – what you're wanting as well if if it's just like a one night stand or you know something more casual or you know a long-term partner where ultimately looks do fade so you probably want someone that you can have a chat with <laughs> um but yeah yeah people are lonely <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think we were gonna start talking about this <laughs> we just had another like how long 10 minutes after the end of the podcast <laughs> There's, there's no there's no set time but yeah it's i don't know it gets you thinking really yeah we don't want to be lonely Mm. Mm-hmm. Go check on your mates and your family. Is that what you want to end on? Yeah, sure. Have I forgotten to do anything else? I've done the way I've done. We've done come with a cause. I'm so tired today. You've done the Indosol. I've done the Indosol thing. Oh yeah, you you want a beer, don't you? Yeah. Um, I think that's it, Manny. You're the best. You know what? Your episode. Oh, I forgot to give you a sticker. Oh. You know, so you get the sticker. 
got two of them now. Let me get out of my bag of tricks. I only give these to the people that have been on the podcast. But the problem I've got is that I've been doing a lot of remote podcasts with people in America and other parts of oh. the world. And I, you know, I've got to send them to them. But who uses the post these days, you know? So you get the sticker, stick it wisely. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me again. And um, I think we'll call it there. It's a beautiful Saturday here in Australia. I can't get it out of my bag. Anyway, yeah. you get the sticker. Thank you. Yeah. All right, let's go. Ooh. Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, tradies, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up. Ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.